Today's sermon comes from Matthew 11, verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." When we talk about the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s, oftentimes what we focus on during that really monumental moment in the life of the history of the church, we focus on justification being declared righteous by faith and not by works. Uh, We focus on the, the five solas of the Reformation, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, the glory of God alone. And the reason there's this emphasis is because there was a practice in the church at that time. It was a practice of indulgences that was incredibly unhealthy and disruptive to the church. And it was a practice that said you can do good works or you can offer money as payment for your sin. And so that's where the the, the justification and salvation by faith alone came out of. But there's a, a, a discipline in the Christian life that was at the core of what happened in the 1500s in the Protestant Reformation that oftentimes I think gets left in the shadows. And that is the discipline of repentance. Because what was happening in the church hundreds of years ago, and you're gonna see it hasn't changed today, the problem still exists, is the difference between false repentance and true repentance. And the Protestant Reformation came about because there was a problem in the church of false repentance. And the thought was that that, that you could pay for your sin to be removed, that that, you could repent by taking control and removing your sin by paying for it rather than receiving forgiveness through true repentance. Martin Luther who was one of the significant figures in the Protestant Reformation said this, our Lord and master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Repentance is central to the gospel today, just like it was central to the gospel in the Protestant Reformation, just like it was central to Jesus' teaching. Christ's very first teaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
and his teaching continued during his earthly ministry to often speak about repentance, including this passage in Matthew chapter 11. Because repentance is central to the gospel, it's central to your life. True repentance is central to a flourishing marriage. It's central to a flourishing family. It's central to flourishing children. It's central to flourishing relationships. And it is absolutely central to a flourishing walk with God. So what is it? What is repentance? First, it's a response to revelation. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus calls out specifically three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Chorazin, we don't know much about. It's mentioned here, nowhere else. It's not in the Old Testament. Bethsaida, we know more about. Jesus healed a blind man in Bethsaida. He fed 5,000 in that city. Philip, Andrew, and Peter, three of the Lord's disciples, were from that city. Capernaum, the last city Jesus mentions here, was his own city. That's where he based a lot of his ministry out of. And Jesus says that people did not repent in these cities. And that causes him to proclaim woe, right? Woe to them. Woe to you. That's a phrase, that woe to you is a phrase that combines warning and compassion. Warning and compassion. In describing their repentance, Jesus teaches an incredibly important truth of repentance, and he does it through emphasis over and over. Look at verse 21. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Tyre and Sidon were great and powerful cities in the Old Testament, but they were cities that, that received the, the, the judgment announcement from Old Testament prophets because of their wickedness. Verse 23, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom, like Tyre and Sidon, was a, was a great city in the Old Testament, but it was a city that uh, was pronounced, judgment was pronounced upon it because of its wickedness. So here's the shock. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's speaking to God's people. And the shock is for these Jews, they were absolutely assured that things would be much worse for the unbelievers on judgment day than for them. And Jesus here flips it around. And he says, shockingly to God's people, it's gonna be worse for you on the day of judgment than for these cities, these wicked cities. You say, why? Why would judgment be worse for the Jews. Well, notice 
the reason that Jesus gives for pronouncing judgment on them. He does it three times, again, to, to bring emphasis. Verse 20, where most of his mighty works had been done. Verse 21, for if the mighty works done in you. Verse 23, for if the mighty works done in you. Mighty works, mighty works. What's the significance of that? Well, the mighty works were a manifestation of God's powerful presence. That these mighty works were intended to reveal God's presence before them and invite them into considering their standing before God and to repent of the evil they had done. And yet, when these evil or when these mighty works were done in front of them, the high point of God's revelation. Here's God in the flesh right in front of them doing these miraculous things. They were indifferent to it. And they even scorned it. What's Jesus teaching? What's the incredibly important truth Jesus is teaching about repentance? It's that repentance is a response to revelation. It's a response to the revelation of God, to the presence of God. And if repentance is a response to anything but the presence of the one true holy God, then it will become false repentance and worldly sorrow. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. This is why King David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and after he had Bathsheba's husband killed on the battlefield, says in Psalm 51, verses three to four, for I know my transgressions and my sins ever before me. Listen to what David says here. Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You say, wait a minute. David sinned against Bathsheba. And he sinned against Bathsheba's husband. Yes, he did but he didn't do that until he had first sinned against God. You can't disobey any of the last half of the 10 commandments without first disobeying the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. That anytime you sin horizontally against someone, before you commit that sin, you have sinned against God because you have put another God before him. David, before he committed adultery with Bathsheba, bowed down, worshiped the God of pleasure and the God of power before he ever committed that sin. And that's why David could say, I sinned against you and you only. I've sinned against you first, God. It was a sin against you, a violation of the first commandment that led me to then go out and commit sin against someone else. If, if repentance is a response to anything 
but the, the presence of a holy God, then it will become false repentance. It will become worldly sorrow. You say, now, what, what are those things? What are those gods that I could respond to that are not the one true holy God that could lead to false repentance or even no repentance? Repentance can be a response to the presence of the God of success who has failed you. You've worked really hard to succeed at something. And despite your hard work, you've failed. The God of success lets you down. And in that failure, you sin against others. If your response in that sin is a response to the presence of the God of success, then your repentance is gonna be false. It's gonna be worldly sorrow, which will then produce all kinds of excuses and blame shifting, whatever it may be. Your repentance can be a response to the presence of the, the God of approval, to the revelation of the God of approval that's failed you. You worked really hard to be accepted by someone or a group of people, and they reject you. And in that embarrassment or in that shame or in that rejection, you then sin against others. If your repentance is a response to the revelation of the God of approval, it's going to be false repentance. It's gonna be worldly sorrow. Or your repentance can be a response to the presence of the or revelation of the God of pleasure, right? where you seek something that feels good. And for some reason it fails and you end up in a pile of pain, the opposite of what you were seeking. And in that pain, you sin against others. And if your response in that sin, if you're responding to the presence of the God of pleasure, your repentance is gonna be false. It's gonna be worldly sorrow. Or repentance can be a response to the presence of the God of security that's failed you. You've worked hard to get ahead financially. And for various reasons, you fall behind financially. And in that material loss, that financial loss, you sin against others. If your response in that sin is to the presence of the God of security, your repentance is gonna be false. You're gonna be filled with worldly sorrow which again will lead to excuse making and will lead to blame shifting and the such. What I want you to hear is that repentance, true or false, repentance is always a response to revelation, to the presence of something or someone. And the point Jesus is making is that if you're not responding to the presence of a holy God, and you're responding to the presence of something else, your repentance is gonna be false. You're gonna experience worldly sorrow, which as Paul says, leads to death. Godly sorrow, true repentance leads to life. False repentance, worldly sorrow leads to death. So here's the question. Is your life characterized by true repentance? 
You say, I don't know how to answer that. Ask your spouse, but brace yourself when you ask your spouse. Or ask your friend. Or ask your children. Or children, ask your parents. You say, that, that's, that's really daunting. It is daunting, but we have blind spots. It's a really, really fruitful question to ask to those that are close to you. Is my life characterized by repentance? Do you see in my, in my life true repentance? Because if your life is not characterized by true repentance, then you are functionally not responding to the presence of God. If your life is, has a pattern of false repentance, then, then you are functionally responding to the presence of something other than the holy God. So what is repentance? It's a response to revelation. But second, it's an act of humility. It's an act of humility. Verse 25 at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. These things, what are these things? These things are the secret of the kingdom of heaven manifest in Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, let me start with what he's not saying. He's not saying that God arbitrarily decides who to hide the kingdom from and who to reveal the kingdom from as though he's arbitrarily deciding before innocent people who are helpless and innocent under his divine orders. No, God's dealing with a, a, a race of sinners, a group, a people that are sinners whom God owes nothing. So when he says that he hides these things from the wise and understanding, that's not an act of injustice. Like we would say, that's just not fair. He just arbitrarily his, hides that from somebody. No, it's not an act of injustice. It's actually an act of judgment. The second thing here is that Jesus is not saying that God hides the kingdom from really smart people. Like if you're really smart and really intellectual, too bad, he hides the kingdom from you. And if you're a literal child, hey, you're in good shape. He's gonna reveal the kingdom to you. That's not what he's saying here. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the presence of the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ is not figured out or known through human wisdom that you don't come to know Jesus, to know God through human wisdom or through human rationale. This is what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through human wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, which Paul would go on to say, Christ crucified to save those who believe. The kingdom of heaven, the knowledge of God 
is hidden from human wisdom. Meaning you can't just use your intellect and wisdom to figure out who God is in the kingdom of heaven. And the contrast here in verse 25 is between the self-sufficient who deem themselves to be wise. That's the wise and understanding. And on the other end, or the other side of the contrast, the dependent or those who love to be taught. That's the little children. The contrast here is between the, pr the proud and the humble. Simply put, between the proud and the humble. It has always been, verse 26, God's gracious will. It's always been his gracious will that the humble or the lowly could find their way. And if the, the proud and the wise find their way, they, they find their way in the same way that the lowly and humble find their way, and that is through simple trust in Jesus Christ. That that is the way that the kingdom of heaven is revealed, is through simple trust in Jesus. There's a great story in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5 that illustrates this. It's a story about a man named Naaman. And Naaman is the commander of the army of Aram. He's also what we would say today would be equivalent prime minister of the nation. Naaman is wealthy. He's powerful. He's a decorated soldier. He has a list of accomplishments, a list of great abilities. Naaman is highly regarded and highly capable because he's in a high position, but he had leprosy. And leprosy was a condition that was awful. It would start with the disfigurement of the limbs and eventually it would, in its finality, kill the person. It would be today like someone getting a cancer diagnosis. Naaman got a cancer diagnosis. He got leprosy. And there was a servant girl in his house that served his wife. She was an Israelite. She had been captured by Naaman's army. And she said to Naaman's wife, I know a prophet in Samaria that could cure your husband. And so Naaman runs off to Israel to seek this cure, but he doesn't go to the prophet. He goes to the king of Israel. He goes to the king of Israel and he brings a letter of recommendation from the king of Syria. And he brings a whole lot of money. And he comes to the king of Israel with a whole lot of money and a letter of recommendation because he's Naaman. And he says, now, my healing, please. And the text says that the king of Israel got angry. Why are you coming to me? Who am I? Right? And Elisha, the prophet, gets word of this. And so Elisha says and, and tells the king, hey, send, send Naaman my way. And so Naaman goes to Elijah's house and Elijah sends servants to the door to answer the door for Naaman. Offense number one. I'm Naaman. I don't even get Elisha to come to the door. These servants come to me. And then finally gets to Elisha and Elisha says, if you want to be cured, 
of your leprosy, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And the text says that Naaman was outraged. He was so angry. Elijah didn't take his money. And he didn't tell Naaman to go do some great thing to show off his accomplishments. And then Naaman says, the Jordan? There's other rivers that are much more pristine than the Jordan. I'm Naaman. You don't send me to the stinky Jordan. At least send me to a prestigious river for my healing. You see, Naaman believed that he was in control of his healing. He was a proud man. And as long as he remained proud, there would be no healing. At the heart of repentance is I am wrong. I am not in control. And God owes me nothing. Now, I hope you see why repentance is an act of humility. And I hope you see why it's so difficult. Because your flesh, when I say your flesh, I just mean you in your own strength. Your flesh runs against the grain of every one of those statements. Your flesh says, I am right. I'm in control. And God owes me something. And as long as you're in that place, there will be no repentance. There will be no healing. And as we'll get to, there will be no rest. Repentance is not a self-sufficient act. Repentance is a supernatural act. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to be by my father and no one knows the son except the father. And then here it is. No one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Repentance is a response to revelation, which then empowers you to act humbly. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Humility is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Pride is a natural work of your flesh. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. What is repentance? It's a response to revelation. It's an act of humility. And finally, it's the pathway to rest. It's the pathway to rest. Verses 28 to 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, the word yoke was very well known in the first century, certainly in first century Judaism. These people that Jesus was speaking to, they understood the word yoke because the rabbis of the day, which were just the teachers of the day, had a phrase they would use often, the yoke of the law. And the rabbis would say, we love the yoke of the law. You say, well, okay. 
It's consistent with Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is all about God's law and how we love it. The problem is the law that the rabbis and then the Pharisees were talking about was a law that went well beyond God's law. They became great at creating new rules and more rules and more laws. And just about the time you you had it figured out, they'd create a new law and a new rule, this ever proliferation of laws and rules. But when you're worshiping the God of control, that is bound to happen. When you're not worshiping the one true God, when you're worshiping the God of control, that's exactly what happens. Parents, when you're worshiping the God of control, what do you do to your children? Now, let me just make a caveat here. There is discipline and that's good. And there are boundaries for kids. So what I'm about to say is not saying, throw out the boundaries. Let your kids do what they want. That's not what I'm saying. But when you are worshiping the God of control, what do you do to your kids? You tighten the screws down. Make more rules. You come down hard. Don't do this, don't do that. You start to control. It feels good to you because it feels good to have that sense of control. What do your kids feel? They feel burdened. They feel maybe exasperated. They feel kind of crushed under the weight of it. Again, I'm not talking about healthy discipline when you're worshiping a holy God, the holy God. I'm talking about when you're worshiping the God of control. Let me run it through the workplace. When when you as a boss are worshiping the God of control, what do you do to people working under you? You micromanage a lot. And some of you are underneath a micromanaging boss and you know what it feels like. It's burdensome, it's wearisome, it's crushing. Jesus says, every yoke, every yoke that is not attached to him will crush people, will make people feel burdened and weary. And that's exactly what Jesus was stepping into here with the Pharisees who loved the yoke of the law. And by loving the yoke of the law and satisfying their need for control, felt good to them, those under them were being crushed. And they were heavy laden and they were burdened. And it's to these people that Jesus says, I have a different yoke. I've got a different yoke for you. It's my yoke and it won't crush you. It won't burn you. Jesus says, my yoke, verse 30, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now, what's a yoke? Let's just define it here in agricultural terms. A yoke is a wooden cross piece that would fasten to the neck of two animals and be attached to the plow they were pulling. So if you're yoked to something, you go where that thing goes. In other words, yoke signifies submission to authority. Submission to the authority of someone you're yoked to means you go where they go. So to be yoked to Jesus means to submit to his authority. Now, here's here's the truth. There's not a person on the face of this earth that is not yoked to something. In other words, 
There's not a person on the face of this earth that is not constrained or controlled by something or someone. What you are functionally controlled or constrained by is what you are yoked to. So you can be yoked to money. You can be yoked to your job. You can be yoked to a person. You can be yoked to a substance. And what Jesus is saying is that every yoke outside of his, every yoke other than his will ultimately crush you. It will burden you. It will make you weary. It will make life miserable, ultimately. Jesus says, my yoke will bring you rest. Rest to your entire being. Why? Jesus gets two reasons. One has to do with his person, his character, and the other has to do with his work, what he does. First, his person or character, verse 29. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Most leaders and teachers naturally rise to a superior place. Jesus, as leader and teacher, said, no, no, I'm gentle and humble. He left his place in heaven. Philippians 2.7 tells us he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. He's humble. And he's not only humble, but he's gentle. Isaiah 42.3 tells us that a bruised reed, just get this imagery, a bruised reed, he won't break. A faintly burning wick, there's barely any light left. It's barely burning. He won't quench it. He's gentle. And then the phrase in heart means that Jesus isn't humble as a show. He doesn't pretend to be humble. He doesn't pretend to be gentle. In heart means that in his innermost being, he is gentle and he is humble. And that's why his yoke brings rest. But there's a second reason it's attached to his work. Verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, what's that mean? When Jesus says, learn from me, what does that mean? Let's start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean imitate me or learn from my experience. That wouldn't be restful. If he's calling you to imitate him, then you will be aware hour by hour, day by day of your failure because you will never imitate Jesus Christ perfectly. That would not be restful. If he said, imitate me, that would be crushing in the same way that the people that he's speaking to had been crushed under the yoke of the law by the Pharisees. This is not a passage about example. This is a passage about revelation. Verse 27, 
No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a passage about revelation. What Jesus is saying is this. When he says, learn from me, he's saying, learn from the revelation that I alone impart. In other words, learn from what I reveal to you. You say, well, what does Jesus reveal to you that you should learn from? Well, on the surface, you could read this passage. And when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, you could interpret that to say, well, the Pharisees had all these laws and they were very demanding on how we should live. Jesus' yoke is easy, which means he's just less demanding. He just demands less of me. That's why it's easy. Actually, the opposite is true. We just finished the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was much more demanding than what the Pharisees were putting out there because the Pharisees were just doing behavior management. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that we just finished in Matthew was all about not just behavior management, but inward heart motivation. And so as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it pins you against the wall. He demands more than what the yoke of the law of the Pharisees demanded. You say, well, okay, wait a minute. How's that restful then? Because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, one of the visions that you're to get or one of the responses is not just, oh, my heart is ugly. My motivations are a wreck. And that's true. But one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to give you a vision of what you're becoming. To give you a vision of the perfection of Jesus Christ and the promise that one day when Jesus returns, you won't be able to sin again and you will be perfect just as Jesus is minus you won't be God. But apart from you're not God, you will be like Jesus in every way, pure as can be. And so when you sin, the revelation that God, that Jesus gives you is a day's coming when you won't sin like this again. The day's coming when you won't get jealous again or get envious again or have bad thoughts of people again. That's a hopeful vision. That's a restful vision. But he gives you a second revelation. That's one of what you're becoming and what you will be one day. But when you fail to be that, welcome to life every day. When you fail to be that, he gives you a different, a second vision, a second revelation. And that is not of what you will become, but of what he became as the suffering servant. As the suffering servant, when he left heaven, made himself nothing and died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, to take away your sin, past, present, and future forever. That positionally you would stand before God holy and blameless that one day practically you will be holy and blameless when he returns. And so Jesus, when he says, learn from me, he says, learn from the revelation that I alone impart, which means that when you are heaped in your sin, 
Jesus gives you two visions. One is the hopeful vision of one day, you're not gonna be able to do that. And he gives you the vision of, I'm the suffering servant. I already paid for that. You're forgiven. Sign me up for that yoke, right? Sign me up for that yoke every day and I need it every day. We're the chief of sinners. Now when Jesus says my yoke is easy and light and I will give you rest, we go, amen. Yoke me to Jesus every day, all day long so that he can reveal those two visions to me every time I mess up. Back to the story of Naaman, 2 Kings 5. The Bible from start to finish reminds us that forgiveness is free to the recipient, but is always costly to the giver. In other words, forgiveness always comes at a cost or a sacrifice. Naaman's healing, which I'll get to the end of that story, but Naaman's healing came at a cost in 2 Kings 5. You say, what was the cost? The cost is wrapped up in this, this little detail that we overlook in that passage. And that is the little servant girl that served Naaman's wife that was an Israelite. Naaman, as the commander of the army, had sent that army out and raided some Israelites and, and, and brought that slave girl back. At best, her family was captured and sold off. At worst, her family was captured and killed. Either way, her life was ruined by this man. She had an option. She could have watched his arm and his hand start to disfigure. She could have watched his arm fall off and just rejoiced on the inside to see this man pay for how he had ruined her life. She could have watched his other arm fall off and she could have watched him die. And as he was approaching death, she could have just rejoiced about the day that she would dance on his grave. Because he had ruined her life. She could have withhold, withheld the information that she knew would have brought him healing, which was the prophet in Israel. She didn't do that. She didn't alleviate her suffering by making him pay. She absorbed it. She forgave him. And she sought his good by pointing him to the place where he could be healed. What a picture of our suffering servant, Jesus Christ. You and I sin against him every day. And we will until he returns, until we die. We sin against him every day. And he absorbed all of our sin on the cross when he made himself nothing and became a servant 
suffering servant for you and me. That's forgiveness. Now the story of Naaman ends well. I told you he was outraged. How dare you ask me to go into this stinky Jordan River and wash seven times? How dare you not take my money? How dare you not ask me to do something great? Because that's what I do. So that I can be in control of my healing. How dare? He was outraged. Towards the end of the story, it says some of his servants pleaded with him. They're like, but, but sir, just go wash. There's healing. And so finally, Naaman humbled himself and he went and he washed in the Jordan seven times and he was healed of his leprosy. Repentance is the pathway to healing. It's the pathway to rest. And in your pride, you won't repent. In your flesh, you have no power to get over your pride. But the Holy Spirit has the power to break you of your pride and to bring you to a place of humility where you can say, I am wrong. I'm not in control. And God, you owe me nothing. But I come to you in humility. And God responds with his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And yoked to Jesus, you will find rest for your chaotic soul. Do you know this rest? Are you experiencing this rest? Or is your heart and soul full of turmoil and chaos right now? Because you've been digging your heels in the ground, unwilling to repent. There's a better way. There's the way of repentance. There's the way of humility. And there's the yoke of Jesus that will bring rest to your soul. Let's pray. Father, we know how hard our hearts are. We know how our hearts are full of so much pride. And we come to you and we confess that pride. And we confess our responding to all kinds of gods other than you. And we confess that it's led us to false repentance and worldly sorrow and ultimately death. Father, we turn to you. And as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we come to you in humility. We come to Jesus to be reminded of who we're yoked to. And in Christ, there is only rest. There is not chaos. We pray this in his name. Amen.